We are picking up back in Revelation 7 tonight, and part of the reason for moving slowly here, uh, when we pick up in the weeks to follow, we'll start to pick up the pace a little bit, and it'll just get back crazy again with this trumpet blast and this judgment, and then and then an interlude, and then this scene in heaven, and, 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 a, and a dragon who's Satan knocking stars out of the sky. It, and, and so you get a little bit... Um, into the stuff that either like transfixes us or terrifies us. But here in chapter 7, there is so much very clear, tangible truth uh, for, for who God is, for the heart of God, for uh, really, as, as we'll walk through tonight, the mission and, and, and part of the purpose for the church. Uh, and so we're, I just I don't want to quickly fly through 7 also because... Seven is one of those chapters that uh, it's one of those Hobby Lobby verses for pastors, right? If we're going to talk about missions, Lottie Moon offering, you're probably going to hear one of three verses. You probably hear all three. You're going to hear the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. You're going to hear uh, Jesus' charge about uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you in power, Acts 1.8. And you're going to hear, in heaven, the scene of heaven is a great multitude uh, of every tongue, tribe, nation. And so it gets quoted a lot, and I think it's important we understand and look and really allow it to examine us for what's there. So if you'll remember, chapter 7, we've been walking through the seal judgments. We go through six of them, and then there is an interlude where John sees uh, four angels holding back further judgment, the four winds. A fifth angel comes in and says, keep holding those. We've got to seal God's chosen. We see the 144,000 coming out of the 12 tribes of Israel. We looked at that last week. And then picking up in verse 9, so he sees this group of 144,000. It could be literally 144. Likely there's some level of symbolism, but a, but a, a, a mass turning to faith in Christ by people who are biologically, ethnically Jews, members of the, the, uh, the people of God from the Old Testament. He sees this group, and then verse 9 says, Then after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude. Now he sees a second group, and a, a group, if this first group has a number assigned to it, this group is, is a number which no one could count. A great multitude which no one could count, for any describes, from every nation and tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches were in their hands, uh, white robes symbolizing righteousness, purity uh, that comes from faith in Christ, Christ's righteousness, uh, white robes symbolizing victory, palm branches, a, a, a sign of, of celebration, of of joy, of triumph, and they were, and they were crying. And by the way, if palm branch, if that strikes you as strange, or if you go, uh, well, I mean, palm branches. I remember, you know, Jesus coming in on Palm Sunday, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Just, just think about, uh, just th- pick, pick a, pick a sports franchise who has, who has fans that wave stuff. Okay, right. If you go to an A and M game, you've got the white towels, and during kickoff, all the students spin that towel. And if you go to what was I remember back at growing up in middle school when the Anaheim Angels, Los Angeles Angels, won the World Series that year. They had these. It was the first year they had the inflatable sticks, like you, you blow them up, and and they would make all these noise, and they would right. Why do why do fans do that? Well, part of the time you do it because you're cheering for a team, but why do you do it after your team? Because victory, you're celebrating, you're rejoicing, you're, uh, and so it's not that crazy of an idea, even though we don't really walk around and see people get palm branches and and waving them all around. So there's the idea of victory, 
And this group of people, clothed in righteousness, pure, holy, uh, waving signs of victory and rejoicing, they cry out with a loud voice. Notice this, this multitude that no one can count, so, so there's a lot of diversity. We know it's not just diverse in the amount of number, but it's diverse in, in who makes up the crowd. Every, every nation, a tribe, people's tongue. So he's looking out and he is seeing truly a ethnically, linguistically, culturally diverse crowd uh, that is beyond a number known to him. But yet they cry with a loud voice, singular, one voice, a unified voice, a voice unified by the Holy Spirit. It says they cry out with one voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. They all fell on their face before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, it is so Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So here's this large group, this diverse group of every tongue and tribe, someone from at least at least someone from every tongue and tribe that's that's ever lived, and and, and here they are, and and they cry out praising God for his salvation, and in the sound and the sight of their praise for salvation, which remember, I'll remind all of us salvation in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, redemption through the shed blood of Jesus. There is only one creature in all of creation who has access to that. It's it's humankind. Now, the, the animals, nature will experience some redemption because of our redemption. Romans 8 talks about that. Uh, there will come a fall of creation that nature is groaning under the, the chaos and brokenness of sin and it's awaiting its redemption. There's going to come a point where there is redemption for, for the natural order, but it's not because Jesus died on a cross to pay the price of sin of the whales. The angels, more glorious than us, would be scared spitless if one showed up. You've got individuals in the New Testament who have seen Jesus fully glorified and they're tempted to bow down and worship at the feet of angels because of how glorious and mighty and strong the angels appear. But the angels don't experience any part of God's salvation. Those who fell, they fell and they were permanently placed in chains. And but so, the, so just understand the weight. We're the only ones who can declare this cry of praise. There's only one group in heaven that's going to be saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the... It's, it's humankind. And the, and the sound, the, 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 the response from the rest of the host of heaven hearing and seeing the praise of God's people, the praise of humankind for salvation, it moves all of heaven, beings far more glorious than us at this moment, it moves all of heaven to prostrate themselves and declare the glory and wonder and greatness and majesty and worthiness of God. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, I could linger there and keep using superlatives because it just, it's truly beyond what I think any one of us have the ability to fully conceptualize the side of heaven. What we need to understand is it is so awe-inspiring and amazing what you and I have in Christ that it is a shame that we too often can, can just get bored with it. To not be amazed and transfixed by the wonder of, of salvation. But 
I digress. We move on. So here's this scene. He sees this. Then one of those 24 elders answered, saying to John, those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And he said, my Lord, you know, and by Lord, he doesn't mean like God, Lord. He just means, hey, you're clearly smarter and more superior than me. So you you tell me, or the other way, it's when the professor asks you a question in class and you know that he knows and you don't, or she knows and you don't, and you say, I got it, pro- I got it, doctor. You, you tell me, you're, you're the PhD. You're the one who knows. And he said, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will have the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to the springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away tears, every tear, from their eye. So now we find out a little bit more about this great multitude. Specifically, he says this great multitude isn't even all of humankind who's believed in God for salvation, believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. He says these are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation. Now, some would say, well, the great tribulation, that's just all of the all of all time experience. Some would say, well, typically in scripture, when you hear that specific term, the, you know, with the article, great tribulation. For instance, I'll give you contrast. Sunday, the letter to Thyatira, he said, Those of you who are following, understand, I'm throwing Jezebel into a bed of sickness. Those of you who are following her, I will throw into, and your Bible probably says, great tribulation. But great tribulation is different than the great tribulation. You and I may experience seasons of great tribulation, but that's different than going through the great tribulation. That would be that seven-year period that will mark the end of human history prior to the second coming of Christ. He said, these have, have come out of the great tribulation, which understand the weight of that. In the period of human history, when by all accounts it will look like God loses and the enemy wins, there will be a flood of people who are being saved by Jesus because the enemy never wins and Jesus always wins. He's already won. And remember, who's this being written to? A group of believers who are suffering or, or if, if they're not suffering, it's because they're chickening out of following Jesus fully and wholeheartedly. So to hear, guess what? In the worst days of humanity, there is a great multitude. Now, understand this. This great multitude, most of them will have died either in the chaos and destruction of what that is experienced on the earth, or many of them will die at the hands of other people, many of them for their faith in Jesus Christ, martyrs. Because we know just uh, what we've already seen, even about the destruction in the Great Tribulation. But it says this, they've come out of the Great Tribulation. Well, remember chapter 6, the, the great judgment of God comes and, and everybody on the earth is seeking to flee it. And, and they, the question is, who can stand? And then all of a sudden we come here to chapter 7 and we find a great multitude standing before the throne. Well, how do they stand? Well, he, he goes on to describe. They didn't just come out of the Great Tribulation. The reason they're here is they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You can take the imagery from Isaiah, which describes the best of our righteousness. The best, you take the best, most disciplined, most good from, it, from our vantage point, human. Take the best. 
The one who, when you look at their scorecard of works of righteousness, it is better than any human. God says, you take that human and you take that resume of of righteousness. And I'm going to paraphrase Isaiah. Isaiah says, that resume of righteousness compared to the righteousness of Jesus is like a soiled piece of toilet paper. And I'm not trying to be gross or junior high, but that's filthy rags. That's more true to the connotation of filthy rags as opposed to like, well, I used this rag to dust the fan today. Well, we're not talking about a dusty rag. We're talking about something that's gross, that we don't want anything to do with, that you hide, that you throw away into a dump. It says the best of our righteousness is like that. But here's what he says, those soiled, dirty, nasty rags that have clothed you, that have defined you, that expose you. Those rags which are reflective of the state of your heart, it says they've taken them down to this flowing river of the blood of Jesus. And they dipped the robes. And when they plunged them underneath that crimson river, they didn't come out red, they came out white, pure, holy. Why? Because they didn't come out with just purified human righteousness, they came out reflective of Jesus' righteousness. It says, God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become our sin, to become our filthy rags on the cross, that we might become His righteousness in Christ Jesus. There's a swap in salvation. Before salvation, I stand before Jesus on the basis of, I stand before God on the basis of my works. And they fall short for every human. When I come to that point of placing faith alone in who Jesus is and what He's done alone, He saves me by His good grace alone. He takes all of my sin. Well, I've actually already taken it on the cross. He separates it from me. He washes me in His blood And He gives me new attire, His attire. Which is why on my worst of days, when we understand what it means that Jesus is our great high priest, Hebrews chapter 4, it is why on our worst of days, where we know we are the lousiest child of God we could possibly be, it is why we still possess the ability and should, with boldness and confidence, rush into the very throne room and presence of God and say, Father, Papa, Abba, here I am. I need grace and mercy. And we should run in there confident that one, he'll pick us up and two, he'll show us grace and mercy because he's already adopted us and washed us clean. My ability to be competent before God has nothing to do with my performance. And every time as a child of God, you and I start to... to uh, um, And if you're wired as more of a perfectionist, this will be a struggle for you. It it is for me. It is easy to try to go back into the mindset of, well, I, I haven't done well enough for God to want to pay attention to me. Guess what? God thinks about you more than 900 billion times a second, and it's not because you've ever earned it. It's just because He's good. And in His grace, He loves you. And the wonderful news is not just that He's good and He loves you and 
but that for those of us in Christ, we can actually experience a relationship with us and not just know about that knowledge, but actually know what it means. It's incredible the reality of what it means that we we take our, our robes, we wash them in the blood of the Lamb. It is Jesus' blood alone. No other blood can do it. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. It talks further in there about all of the blood shed by animals under the old covenant. But blood of goats and bulls could never wipe away sin. But that was all to point forward to get people to realize the weight, the costliness of sin, that there has to be a sacrifice to make someone right with God. And it was to look forward to the one true Lamb, the Lamb of God, whose blood would be offered once for all. Meaning there's no more offering for our sin. It's already been paid in full, which is why Jesus on the cross, what were some of His final words? It is finished. It's done. Wow. It says they've washed their... And by the way, it says they've washed their... But understand, any of us in Christ, that's true of what's happened to us. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night. They who in the great tribulation may have felt moments of wondering, God, where are you? What's happening? What's there? Never were, they, never were they away from His presence, and now they stand before Him day and night, serving Him. They've been given a ministry in His temple, and, and He who sits on His throne will spread His tabernacle, His tent, His dwelling place over them. This speaks of an intimacy in, in the presence of God Almighty that is, uh, that is truly beyond what we have known today. Go back if you've ever been. I, I know some of you surely uh, have been at times and places in life. Maybe it was way back when in an older kind of revival service. Maybe it was one day at church. Maybe it was at a youth camp. Whatever you want to go with. That time where, where you were together with the people of God and you were worshiping God in song and you were praying to God and, and beseeching God in prayer and you were hearing the word of God preached and you just, in that moment, you can just sense the holy presence of God gripping you in the place. It will be nothing like what it means to have His tabernacle placed over you. That's just a foretaste. A foretaste of what is coming. It says they will hunger no longer. Those who may have died because of the famine on the earth, they will hunger no longer. They will thirst anymore. The sun, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. That ought to be instantly understandable for every person in this room. It is how I know for the people that love the crazy hot weather, you will be disappointed in heaven. It will not be hot. I'm being a little facetious there. That's, that's not what the, the Word says. It does say, though, that they're, the pain, the misery of the scorching heat bearing down on you, you don't know it anymore. For the Lamb will be in the center of the throne, will be their shepherd. There's so much wonderful imagery of, of a shepherd throughout Scripture. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me behind still waters. He, he guides me to, to waters of rest. He, he leads me down paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear why my shepherd, His rod and His staff, they comfort me. His, his, his tools of, of correction and His tools of defense, they comfort me. Speaks Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who is not a hired hand working for the owner of the sheep but is himself the owner of the sheep. 
Not a shepherd who would run away at the sight of danger, but a shepherd who would lay down his life at the danger the sheep posed to themselves. There's so much wonderful imagery and caring imagery of, of a shepherd. A shepherd knows his sheep by name. It says that he, the lamb will be their shepherd. You know there's a wonderful irony in that? The lamb will be the shepherd. And what will he do? He will guide them to springs of the water of life. We will taste and know of abundance and provision in heaven. That will be astounding. And then he says this. And God will wipe every tear from their eye. Every ounce of the hardship. The pain of seeing someone they love die. I mean, we, we can just we can go on down the list of all those things. And we know and we'll see that language again when we get to Revelation chapter 21. And we'll see it's, it's with his hands. He wipes our tears away. All of the sorrow. We, here, we, we all know this. We all know this. Time does not heal all wounds. In fact, time doesn't heal many wounds, if we're honest. Time doesn't heal the, the pain I have at my grandmother's murder. Why? Because I want to see her. I want to talk to her. I want to hug her. I want to I want her to I want to watch her play with my kids like she did with me. I want them to. There's an aspect that will never be healed this side of heaven. There are people who have sinned against me. Whom I do have to make a choice not to, to hold on to anger and bitterness towards, but to, to, to release uh, that, that to the Lord because that's, that's the Lord's deal. I have to choose if it came down to me not to return evil for evil, but, but evil with good. But ultimately cannot, so in that sense I can forgive, but there's another sense in which you can't fully forgive because full forgiveness requires repentance. And there are some things that are broken and people that won't be fixed until... Unfortunately, as sad as it is, heaven. And here he says that these scars, these pains, these tears, because there's coming a moment, it will all be wiped away. And it won't ever come back. Oh my goodness, church family. Now here's a question for all of us. How much do we think about this on a daily basis? The honest truth is, if we're honest, unless you're getting really, really close and you know it, you don't think about it a whole lot. But how does this reality, let's, again, let's come back in context. Who's, who, who's hearing this read for the first time? It's men and women sitting in the church in Ephesus who have an unbelievable reputation and history as a church, who are active and engaged, who are standing firm, who are sniffing out false teaching, but they've lost actual love for Jesus. How does this all of a sudden break through the, 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 the monotony? How does this break through the, the reality is you're doing all the right things, but there's some kind of self-love there. You either love Jesus or you love yourself. It's one of the two. How does this come into that, that church in Smyrna? Who's, who is not just poor, but is dirt poor in the literalist sense. 
who's struggling to put scraps on the table for their kids, who's facing economic hostility, who've just been told, as bad as it is, it's about to get worse and some of you are going to die in painful ways. How does this all of a sudden come in hearing about this and breathe some fresh strengths into weak knees? How does this come to those at Pergamum and those in Thyatira? Some of whom are, 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 are going against the grain of the others in the church and they're not falling into that false doctrine and, and not capitulating, but others who are going, you know what, yeah, you know what, it's, it's okay, this, this sexual sin I'm playing with, it's okay, this, this idolatry that I'm allowing to go, it's okay. How does a passage like this hitting people in those situations break through the hardness of hearts, the pain of hearts, the worry and anxiety of hearts, and literally cause our eyes to lift up and go, wait a second. Is my life tracking with what it's all about? Is my life really a life lived in hope? Because I've just been told everything that's coming to me. And there's no chance it's not. I, mean, I could go on and on and on, but then I would fulfill the prophecy from the back that we won't get through chapter 7. And there's something important in light of this I want to go back. So, so this is huge. This, this, this passage is massive. It tells us, and not only that, but it, also, it, it tells us something amazing and reminds us of what it means. I've been clothed in the righteousness of God. My sins have been washed away. This is why there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans 8. This is why I can have boldness and confidence with Jesus on my best day, on my worst day, on my ugliest day. I can have boldness and confidence with Jesus when I feel Him near and when He seems distant. I can have boldness and confidence with Jesus to find grace and mercy in time of need when I am experiencing the temptation of prosperity and equally when I am faced with any kind of suffering, including death. To know that what is coming, think of the things we've tasted. That's why I Man, how many times for me, for me what pops in my mind is going back to, 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 a, to Sunday night church as an elementary-aged kid. Because those of you who remember Sunday morning and Sunday night church, you remember how it was. Sunday morning was everybody who might show up. Sunday night was everybody who cared to show up. There was a richness, a purity there. There was moments when even as a kid, and I didn't totally know, I couldn't have told you with words, oh my goodness, the presence of God is just palpable in this place. You could just sense, oh man, what a foretaste of what is coming. What's coming is going to blow that out of the water. So maybe rather than being nostalgic for a return of that, maybe I set my eyes forward and start longing for for something coming that's even more. Maybe in that longing, it'll produce more of that while I'm still here. I mean, there's so Wipe away our tears, there's so much, but then don't miss this about the heart of God. After these things I looked, and behold, there was a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, all tribes, and peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne of the Lamb, what does this tell us about God's heart for this world? Now, looking around, like I know most everybody in here well enough to know the overwhelming majority of this room, you know the Sunday school answer here. 
I'm not dropping some new truth that God loves the whole world, not just me and you. But just look with me so we're clear. Genesis 1 and 2, God makes the world. He makes Adam and Eve. He gives them a charge to be fruitful and multiply, to go out into the world, to take what they see and have experienced walking in the Garden of Eden with God, to go out into this blank canvas of a world and to, to replicate that, that heavenly culture. And instead of loving God, they love self. They believe in enemies' lies. Sin enters the picture. Humanity's broken. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship, our relationship with uh, each other is broken. We see that in Adam and Eve right away. Lord, the woman you gave me. It breaks our relationship with, with our, 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 our selves. Adam, I made you to work, and now you're going to have a broken relationship with work. Don't mishear this and take this the wrong way, but obviously you got, you got two genders, male and female. One can birth a child, one cannot. So ladies, you, you do have more purpose than just birthing children. That's what I'm concerned. Hear me say your only purpose is childbirth. That's not true. But notice what happens. Jesus looks at the lady and says, instead of this being something pleasurable, it's not. It's going to be hard. We know it's not just hard, it can be deadly. It breaks a relationship with ourselves. The heart is now deceitful above all things. Who can know it? I can't even know my own heart. Breaks my relationship with nature. Adam, you and, all, you and whoever else is going out to work the fields with you, once it would have been pleasurable, now thorns and thistles. It broke creation. And then you find that the whole world becomes depraved in a way that's unimaginable, and God wipes it all out, but Noah's family. You find again at the Tower of Babel, the nations, the world that God has created, they reject Him. And then you come to Genesis chapter 12. When you get to Genesis chapter 12, the entire world, in a sense, the nations, the peoples, they have rejected God. And then you get to chapter 12, and God calls Abram. Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse, and all the families of the earth will be blessed. When all of a sudden you fast forward to the people of God coming out of Egypt and, and God entering into the, we'll call it the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant, and He enters into this this covenant agreement with them. And in that, in that agreement, there, are, there is the law and there are these standards that they are to abide to. And, and you find repeated in there that, that, they are, that these standards will cause them to look different than the surrounding peoples. Why? Because they are to be a light of God to the world as they follow God and wait for the fullness of time when the, capital T, light of the world would enter into the world to bring salvation. You, you, you keep going. Uh, what, what, is, what is it that, that Solomon says, 1 Kings 
chapter 8. First Kings chapter 8, Solomon's giving the dedication of the temple. Verse 59, and may these words of mine, which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain uh, the, the, curse of, uh, the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. At the dedication of the temple, God, be, be faithful to the cause of, of your servant. Be faithful to the cause of your people. Why? So that all the peoples would know. You go to places like Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7. Well, look at this. Let's just go to verse 6. Also, the foreigners, not just the people of Israel, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to, to the love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds His covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable to my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the people's. Not just a house of prayer for the people of Israel, for all the peoples. You go back to Isaiah chapter 49. And in this section of Isaiah, we're introduced to the servant, capital S, of God, who we know is Jesus. And in this, in this statement, here's, here's what is said about the servant. And now says the Lord, verse 5, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small, it is too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. It's, it's too small a task. It's too simple to just be saving Israel. We're going after everybody. All the peoples, all the nations. Malachi talks about God's name being great among the nations. Goodness, the whole book of Jonah is a revelation that God cares for the nations, even the most wicked of the nations that hate His people. You get into the New Testament. What is the Great Commission? What's the final words of Jesus in the book of Matthew? All authority has been given to me. I've come in the fullness of time. I have fulfilled the mission of reconciliation. I have paved the path. I have purchased salvation. All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore. And the command is not actually go. Go is the participle, how we do the command. The command is make disciples of all nations. Then he turns around and acts. Spirit will come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we've seen that when we walked through the book of Acts. The book of Acts literally is the, is, is the movement of that verse. The first part looks at the church growing in Jerusalem. We see it spread into the surrounding area of Judea. We watch it fall, salvation fall in Samaria, and then it's the, to the ends of the earth. Or in the case of the book of Acts, it gets all the way to Rome, the capital, the epicenter. 
of the world. We need to understand very clearly God actually really does love the entire world and the mission of God is actually to reach the entire world, every people group, tongue, tribe, not just us. The mission of God, by the way, is not God's mission, and then we as a church decide which parts we latch on to. William Carey, who we call in church history the father of the modern missions movement, he's not the father of missions, that'd be God, but we call him the father of the modern missions movement. Uh, he, when, when he was... Um, When he was studying all of this and sensing God's call to give up everything in England and to go to India, and you're talking back in the 1700s, so we're, you think about how challenging that would be today if God called you to go move to India, there'd be a lot of challenges in, in, in getting there and in adjusting to a different way of life and a culture that's totally different and an infrastructure. Well, let's back that up a couple hundred years when it's going to take you months to get there. You're not even assured you're going to get there. Because you've got to take a boat made out of wood all the way around Western Europe and all the way around the entire continent of Africa and still go some. God told us to go make disciples of all nations. And the man who, uh, I can't remember if it was the man who baptized him, the pastor who baptized him or the pastor who ordained him or both. But it was an influential, it was one of, one of those two influential pastor in his life. I looked at him and said, son, when God wants to win the heathen, he'll do it on his own time. He doesn't need you to go most unbiblical, satanic statements you could come out of a pastor's mouth. They thought he was crazy. But then we see time and time again, God's heart is to save the world. Let me just give you some stats. Now, there's, you can find different deals. Uh, I'm only going to use one chart. Joshua Project is a great, great, uh, great organization you can use to find stats. I'm going to use the stats from the International Mission Board since that's who we support through Lottie Moon and through the cooperative program and the giving of our tithes and offerings. But just listen to how they count. Uh, IMB records, and, and, and IMB records 12,000. Uh, Joshua Project would bump that to 17. I mean, different people define a people group differently, but we'll, we'll go in the low end. The IMB records that there are 12,115 people groups in the world which account for 8.1 billion individual people, men and women, boys and girls. Out of that 12,115, 7,254 of those people groups are considered unreached with the gospel, which accounts for 4.8 billion individuals in the world, men, women, boys, and girls. Out of those who are unreached, and I'm going to define what that means for you in a second, uh, those, who, well, those who are unreached would mean would mean this, that there is less than, in those groups of people, less than 2% of the people are born again, saved by grace through faith to Jesus Christ. Less than 2%. Of those 7,000, there are 3,167, which we would use the terminology, are not just unreached, but are completely unengaged, meaning there is nothing happening to get the gospel to them and not a single known believer in their group. Makes up 283 million people in the world. 
as of July, they send out monthly reports, uh, but July's was the most recent. They, they break, uh, they break the, the world up into, uh, uh, technically it's seven because they use the number, they use zero, uh, but they break up the world, zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, in terms of the status of each people group in, in response to the gospel. So break it down further, and, and six would be the highest. That means that there is equal to or more than 10% of the people are born again, saved by grace through faith. Uh, that would be uh, 1,809 uh, or 14.9% of the people groups, and that is reflective of 564,174,835 or 7% of the world population. And category five, which means equal to or greater than 5%, but less than 10%. That would be uh, 1,440 people groups, which make up, though, 1,792,608,105 or 22.3% of the world's population. You go on down. Let me give you a better idea here. When you get to three, Category three, or sorry, let me go four. I'll just walk through. Greater than four is greater than or equal to two percent born again, less than five percent. That's thirteen point three percent of the world's people groups, which accounts for eleven point one percent of the world's population. When you get down into three or less, you're now getting into unreached. Uh, three means there's less than two percent of the population born again, but there is widespread effort amongst that people at church planting and evangelism. That accounts for 10.8% of the world's population. Two is less than 2% born again, and there has been some initial groundwork at church planting and evangelization. That accounts for 6.4% of the world's population. Category one is there is less than 2% of the people born again. There are few resources available. Let me give you an idea of resources. There's no Bible translated in their language. There's no Jesus film that's been translated into their language. Basic Basic Christian resources. There's, there's few to, to none available. And there is no active known church planning taking place. Now, there may be some evangelism taking place, uh, but even that's going to be small. In category one, that is 53.5% of all the world's people groups, accounting for 42.3% of every man, woman, boy, and girl in the world. Category zero is there is nobody known to be a believer and there is no access to anything, print, visual, audio, or human. Now to give you some contrast so you understand, because I get that I just threw out a bunch of numbers. Today's Bethany's birthday, so I, I went in the office today. We, For her wonderful birthday today, we got to go to the, the doctor and uh, the baby doctor and then pick up food to go back and eat at my in-law's house so then she could take a nap. Uh, that's, that's what birthday looks like when you're 37 weeks pregnant. So I don't have these numbers on a screen, and I apologize for that, but I want to try to conceptualize it for us. In the United States of America, we have 339,736,000 neighbors. It's the population of the United States of America. Did you know the United States of America is made up of 522 unique people groups? 522 people groups make up those, we'll call it uh, 340 million people. 
in the United States of America, there are actually some of our own people groups who are considered unreached. 4.2% of the people in America are considered, are the, of the people groups are considered that. Or sorry, uh, sorry, 4.2% of the population, which is made up of 18.6% of the people group. So here's what that means. When you look at America, uh, then this is the latest stats I've got, and I know this will still... This is dropping, but understand, Americans still identify overall at 75% Christian. Now that's dropping, used to be higher, but that's anybody who, who, who says Jesus is awesome. When you go down a little bit deeper and you go like, what, what actually about those people who say salvation is by grace through faith alone and Jesus alone, who's fully God and fully, you know, people that we would go, you're saved. Uh, that's only 26.49%. Of America. Now, I want you to process that with me for a second. I want you to think about, especially of those, uh, and I'm not trying to stereotype, but I, I think for those of you who are older and have seen more of the decline, just listening to stories from people that I listen to over the years, you, you've probably felt more than anybody the going, wow, our country is dark. It is dark. It is, it is depraved. It is, do you, do you realize on the day you feel that most oppressively, you are living in a country where almost 30% of the people are saved. When we're talking unreached people group, we're talking less than 2% saved. Let me flesh that out for you. Take a country like Nigeria. It has 1,643,000 Nigerians living in country with almost 5 million living scattered around the world. Christianity, out of all Nigerians, in country and out, only 0.88% identify as Christian, as born again, saved by grace through faith. I, I didn't write, uh, oh, I did write the number down. Now, let me give you an example. Hang on. Well, this is what happens when you do all these numbers and uh, you maybe didn't follow your math correct. But here's, here's my basic, I remember what the basic point was. Oh, yeah, 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 now I got it, okay. Okay, now I remember. I, 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 my, my notes, I, I love it when I type my notes up and leave them confusing to my own self. That's really helpful for y'all. Um, but now I remember, okay. If you were to pretend that the United States of America was Nigeria from a percentage standpoint. If the United States of America only had 0.88% of its people identify as born again by grace through faith, it would mean that out of all of the United States of America, you would fit every single Christian into the Denver metropolitan area and the entirety of the rest of the country would be lost as a goose. By the way, I can make it maybe a little simpler. It would be like fitting the entirety of every Christian in America in the greater Austin area. And that's it. Now, I give us these stats because here's the question as we come towards the end that I just want to lay out 
It is a question that is before me on my heart from the Lord as pastor constantly. And so I'm not laying it out because I'm about to spring some, here's the next steps we're taking, church. I will tell you, we will take steps one day. We will take steps maybe sooner than later because we have no choice. Our church does not exist for our pleasure, but for His glory, and we are to be about His mission, not our stuff. But how serious are we as individuals and then corporately as a church about His mission? God's heart is to labor. God's heart is to send the one and only unique Son to pour out His blood for the opportunity to save men and women, boys and girls from every last people in this world no matter how receptive or hating they are of Him. What does this look like for us as a church? What does this look like for how we allocate our time? Well, we, we, we have limited time as a church for the things we can do. We have limited money. How does this, what does this look like for how we allocate our money? What does this look like for how we allocate other resources? What does this look like for what we prioritize as a church, can you imagine how many, I mean, we all know it's an example, a stereotype. How many churches have spent so much time and money bickering and complaining about what color the carpet should be and what beverages should be provided before and after church and never once talk or pray or consider anything of how God would, would use them to go reach the nations? I have seen many a church where the community around the church has changed. And then that church will inevitably, most of the time, and, and I'm not saying this is always wrong, but I just I want to put a counter idea. The, 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 the neighborhood starts to change a little bit. It's not the same neighborhood it was. There, it's, there's, there's more diversity and lostness in the neighborhood. And inevitably, the conversation will come up, but there's this new part of town, that's where the growth is, and we've got to raise the funds as a church to, to build new property to move to the new part of town, where the growth is, where the growth is, where the growth is. And I've heard that many a times and just thought, I don't see any boarded windows around this church in these neighborhoods. That's not where the growth is, it's where a certain kind of new growth is. How serious are we about reaching the community we're in? Because realize, if we get up and move, you know what? We leave a giant hole where there's no church in that community. I'll give you an example of what I mean. It may be that as the... And I, an example I'm going to use, I, I wrote this in a paper for seminary because it was very pertinent at that time with something going on. We could get to a point as a church where enough of the neighborhood around us changes that to have a good old-fashioned hot dogs and... Sandlot baseball 4th of July celebration wouldn't do anything for our community. But if we would do a curry cook-off and play cricket, we'd have half the community at our doorstep. Here's the problem. Many of us will go, ooh, hot dogs, baseball, I'm in. Oh, curry and cricket, I don't know anything about that. The people who have a heart for that can do that. Church family not the people who have a heart for that. We have to have a heart for that. 
We have to be willing to go, Lord, whatever you want us to do, this is your heart. This is your purpose. This is where you're going to listen. Heaven is not going to be a place where, where, where all the smaller ethnic minority congregations are relegated to the side for the big churches. That's not what it looks like. It's every nation, tongue, or tribe right there in front. It's, it's to put it to you this way. If you take every English worship song and you say every language gets one worship song before, the, before, before you know, that language cycles back, take every English worship song, all of you hymn lovers, all of you praise chorus lovers, all of you contemporary lovers, you get one English song every 12,000. Because God's heart is not exclusively English and American. God's heart is for the entire world. Every nation, tongue, and tribe. And inevitably, and I, I know it's time, I'm, I'm going to wrap here. Uh, That's why I said I, I lay the question in front. Inevitably, we do a lot of things. We we, we have the shock jock pastors who get up and go, if everybody's not, if everybody in the church isn't leaving and going to a third world country, then you don't really love Jesus. I, I don't believe that. God's got to call you to go. But the flip side is this. I never forget going to college with people, and this is a direct quote, talking about uh, you know, the future and what we're doing with our lives, and say, I don't know what God's called me to. I just know I'll never go overseas. Hmm, that's, now if you say, look, I don't know what God's calling me to, I, but I really don't have a stirring right now to go over but to just go, I don't know what God's calling me to, but there's one thing I'll never do. Is that reflective of the heart of Jesus? Now, here's the flip side. One of the things we easily ignore in all this is you go, wow, okay, well, Pastor, are we going to partner with people? Are we going to, what, what, what other states are we going to? What other countries are we going to? Let's just pause for a second. Do you realize the unbelievable massive amount of the nations that sit right here in our own backyard? We've got no business taking 25 mission trips a year, and look at us, we have this passion for the nations and never doing squat to reach the people right around us in our own backyard. Man, you, you, uh, the search committee asked me when, when I first came, before, before vote anything, it was just a meeting with them, and, and they threw out the question, in 10 years, what would be a hope for the church? And I said, you know what would be awesome in 10 years? Is if on the screens when we were singing praise, we had to put the lyrics in three different languages because the congregation was that diverse of the reflective of the community we live in and seeing people of all nations come to faith in Christ. And by the way, I've been in a church where that's taken place. Where there was German, Romanian, and English. We were all singing the same songs and it was, you talk about a foretaste of heaven all in our own heart language. So I just, I just, I just simply, the reason I harp here is because we all know this church, we all know God's hearts for the nation, but how, how serious does that weigh on us? How deeply does that stir us? How, and I don't know what that means for you as an individual any more than myself and for us as a church at this point. I just know that that is what God has laid in front of us. That is where we are headed. And if that is where we are headed, it has to weigh and move and stir our hearts and move our feet and hands now. It has to. And that may sometimes mean we have to really step out of our comfort going and praise God. The Holy Spirit lives inside, and He's really good about empowering us with His grace to go out of our comfort zones, to try new things, to do different stuff. All in the name of it, it is a heart to reach the world. That's what we got to be as a church, because that's who our God is. So, anyways, it's, it's three past. I've got to stop. Not three past seven, but three past cutoff time. Uh, one of the things we're going to do that I do know in the days to come, in light of this, is on Wednesdays, I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to have a regular time of prayer that is for a unreached people group. 
So just know that that's what we're going to do at least one little part of Wednesdays. Add to what we do. We're going to sing a little. We're going to study the Word a little. And we're going to pray a little bit for a specific people group. Uh, and there's a great, I mentioned Joshua Project. If you're really interested in Joshua Project, you can go look up their website and find it there. You can actually, if you're savvy and, and like having apps on your phone, they have an app that every day will notify you with a people group of the day to pray for and prayer requests to pray for that group. And remember, there's now Joshua Project goes further than the IMB. Joshua Project says there's 17,000 people groups. So just if you do that, remember when you pray for that group, if they just do one, one a day, I didn't do the math on that, how many days you got to live to be 17,000, but it sounds like it's more than any of us are going to live. Let's just do it real quick before I pray us out. Okay, that means you, if you pray every day for one people group, every 46 and a half years, you'll have prayed through every people group. Some of you have lived long enough to do one. I haven't. Some of you barely lived long enough to do two. Maybe a handful. But yet that's what the Lord's laid in front of us. And we got to be about it, church family. So anyway, what a wonderful picture it will be in heaven. And... Um, it's, it's going to be glorious, and that needs to ever sit in front of us. No matter how great things are, hard things are, and comfortable things are, it just, it's got to always sit in front of us. So let me pray. Jesus, you are worthy. You're good, and I do just pray that you would make clear our path as a church just on what it looks like to be a church whose heart is reflective of your heart. God, and your heart is, is reflective of one that wants us to reach Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. How you use us to do that will be different than how you use other churches to do that. You've got a unique uh, place for us to play. You've shaped us as a unique piece of the puzzle of your mission. Uh, but Lord, may, may we not be guilty, Jesus, of you showing up and speaking one day like you do to the church in Sardis when you say, your works aren't complete. Lord, we want to complete the works that you have laid out, the good works you have laid out and prepared beforehand for us. Because Lord, you didn't just save us to be saved and kick back. It says, by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourself. Not uh, as a gift of righteousness, not by works as any man should boast. And then immediately, Lord, you say, for you are God's masterpiece, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works prepared beforehand. Lord, you didn't just save us to kick back. You have saved us and left us here for a purpose and, a, and, and with a mission. A mission that we carry into the school, that we carry to our job, that we carry to the mailbox, that we carry in our neighborhoods. Lord, so open our eyes, pierce and convict our hearts, help us see. And then, Lord, find us faithful, not out of duty, but because there is genuine, true, honest love in our hearts for every part of who you are. And Lord, may you find our hearts longing for that day. God, when we will be part of that great multitude of every tongue, tribe, people, nation, that praises you, Lord. Because we have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. So Jesus, we look to you. Holy Spirit, you fall on us, please. May we not 
waste the precious time you have given to us to know, love, and follow you in this world. It is in your name I pray. Amen.